0: The Lord be with you. It is good to have you all here this morning for this summer Sunday school class at here at First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta. My name is Ryan Bonfilio, and I'm one of the ministers here on staff. And we're really glad that you are are here part of this program. This is week eight of what has been a nine-week consideration of some of the great figures of the Old Testament. We've mainly worked our way through the first five books of the Old Testament, known as the Pentateuch, thinking about kind of the the biographical and theological background of some of the most prominent figures that we encounter in those stories. We've looked at Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and Sarah and Abraham, Isaac and Hagar, and so on and so forth, thinking more deeply about the contours of these complex and interesting stories and how they still relate and are relevant to our faith in the life of the church today. Each week of this series, as you know, stands on its own. So if this is your first time here with us in this nine-week series, you're not going to be left out of the conversation. This week will stand on its own as an independent unit. If you have been here with us multiple weeks, I hope that you begin to sense the trajectory and flow of this course in a way that uh, is helpful to you as you think about the Pentateuch and the figures that we encounter therein. If you want to catch up on any of our previous materials, you can access the lectures, the audio lectures of, of this series both uh, on iTunes, if you subscribe to First Prez ATL on iTunes, you'll have the, all of these downloaded to your tablet or your iPhone, along with the sermons for this church. Also, you can visit us on the web under the Learn link at our home site, and there you can find uh, these lectures as well as the Prezi, uh, these presentation slides for each of the weeks. Uh, two kind of schedule, three scheduling notes. Uh, first, next week, Uh, We have a special guest teacher, uh, Rebecca Lamond, and I think Joel Lamond, although I have to confirm that, will be uh, guest teaching for the final week of this class. And it's a big one. It's Moses. Now, Moses could have been the subject of a nine-week series in its own right, but we've reserved only one week for Moses, and I've definitely handed that off to others to (laughs) deal with. So many of you know and love Rebecca and Joel, and so that'll be a great series. So come out next week. Co-teaching with me this week is Lydia Foreman. I introduced her last week, but we're grateful to have Lydia here on staff at First Press, she's our new intern in teaching and theological education. She'll be here with us all year, and you're gonna have a chance to encounter her and interact with her in a number of different contexts, including Sunday school classes, small groups, Bible studies, and a variety of other different programs that we run in discipleship. If you haven't met Lydia yet, I encourage you just to come up, shake her hand, say hello after this, uh, after this program and get to know her. She's wonderful, she's a great student, and a great teacher, and we're glad to have her here. The final programming note, then we'll actually get started, is that the topic of this week is a little bit different, and it's actually a little bit different than advertised. Each of the weeks leading up to this, when we've thought about individual, specific people that we encounter in the Old Testament, but today I want to do something different. I want to encounter not a particular person or persons, but rather a group of people. Namely, I want to talk about the stranger. Uh, uh, the alien, the refugee, the people who are on the margins of society, particularly how they appear and how they are treated in the first five books of the Old Testament. I think it's an important category and I made this change for at least two reasons. One, the topic seems timely in light of the, the events happening globally today with refugee crises and questions about strangers and outsiders being very much on the front page of the news and, and, and on, for many of us on our minds. But the second reason is, when we think about how the church is to respond to the stranger, when we think about the ethical orientation, our theologies of how we graciously reach out to the stranger, 99.9% of Christians, I did this study, 99.9% of Christians (laughs) look to the New Testament. We think, well, what we have to learn about the stranger, we learn from Jesus. We learn from the Gospels. Maybe we even learn a little bit from Paul. And no doubt that's true. But in many ways... Everything that Jesus and the disciples say about the stranger is derived directly from the stories and commands that we find in the Old Testament, but yet they're they're, they're a lot less familiar to many of us. So today, I want to turn to some of those commands and to begin to get a sense of how does the Bible treat the stranger, particularly in the Old Testament. So that's the task before us this morning. Let's pray, and then we'll get started. God of the ancestors and God of strangers, you welcome us all to have a seat at your table. You call this church your body and you welcome us to it as a home. We pray this morning that as we learn and study and think together about this topic of the stranger, that our hearts are opened and that our lives are changed as we begin to think and act in different ways in this world, we pray this in your name, amen. Now, many of you know, uh, from my previous courses, that I sometimes uh, use what I call TAPS exercise. These are little ways to get you all talking uh, amongst yourselves as we begin a lesson, so I don't need to like step right in front of you. Um, TAPS stands for Talking Aloud Partner Sharing. And so I wanna get you started on the topic of the stranger with a simple question. How would you define a stranger? What is it? What makes someone a stranger? How do you know a stranger When you see them, what qualities uh, or characteristics set someone apart as a stranger? So take about two minutes, turn with someone next to you. And I always make this disclaimer, uh, if you're uh, seated next to your spouse, I'll leave it to you to decide if you turn to talk to your spouse or turn the other direction. I'll let you negotiate that. But take about two minutes on this topic. Okay, friends, let's come back together. I know these conversations could naturally uh, evolve much longer than that short time period, but I want to get a, a quick sense of what you came up with. What, what is a stranger? How do we know a stranger when we see him? What, what, what characterizes them? What do you all think? No, not too many hands at once. I can't, pick, I can't call you out if there are so many hands. Talk
1: about someone you don't know, but okay. also someone that maybe you don't think fits into your circle of contacts your sphere of contacts.
0: Okay, so someone you don't know, but also, and maybe in addition, someone who doesn't fit into your context, someone who might seem out of place with where you call home or where you're from. What else? Please. Uh, so, uh, I see someone I
1: know that I see every day, but I don't know them intimately. I don't, I, I don't call or, or I don't talk to them on a the regular basis. I like to pass by, and I might speak to you and least. Like,
0: no, uh, I just, I just mean... sure. so, so it might be someone in our midst. The stranger doesn't have to be someone from far away. A stranger could be someone we encounter often but never talk to. I think about when I take Marta home, um, back to the Decatur area. There are a bunch of strangers I'm literally elbow to elbow with. So there's, like, there's no proximity issue. I'm very close to them, and yet in every way they're strangers. John?
1: You never have seen
0: before, That's and right. you have no connection with whatsoever. So a total stranger, completely outside of your past experiences, no connection at all. Any other thoughts? This is great.
1: Appearance. Appearance. Appearance is very different from the ordinary. Might notice. Yeah.
0: So how someone looks might at least initially set them apart as a stranger in our thinking. Any other thoughts? Um, when I saw the question, what popped in my mind was parallel
1: with which is who is my neighbor and so I can be a stranger through that, um, thing or that and what we came up with is
0: that a stranger is someone with whom I have yet to identify
1: a point of connection
0: okay. so there's no point of connection yet or at least you haven't identified it maybe there is a point of connection but you haven't discovered it yet, or there hasn't been a relationship established that enables that point of connection to come to the surface. This is great, and we're gonna come back and say more about the, the relationship of stranger and neighbor in just a moment. So I think all of that you said is, 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 is right on. Um, strangers can be people who we are unfamiliar with due to geography, culture, custom, appearance, or proximity, or, or, or maybe even some other set of, of connotations. Um, unfortunately, though, at least something that we need to name, the stranger often has a negative connotation. So there's people we are not familiar with, but that's not necessarily in terms of connotation the same thing as a stranger. Stranger typically, at least in English, has a negative connotation. I encountered this um, in reading a series of children's books with my son Leo. Leo is three and a half and he just got into the Berenstain Bears and you might have heard me reference them. Uh, in the past before. Some of you might have read them to your kids or, or maybe even had them read to you when you were kids. Uh, but they're great little stories, teaching how to life lessons. But there's one that we recently encountered. Uh, it's called Learn About Strangers. And really it's a lesson about why kids should be wary of strangers. Now to be sure uh, there are dangers associated especially with kids and strangers and so on and so forth. But what I was struck as I read this little book to Leo was kind of the, 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 the way they presented the stranger. There's one part in the story where Sister Bear, who is initially very friendly and goes up and talks to everyone. For Sister Bear, the younger kid in the family, there are no strangers. Everyone is a friend. And actually, the part of the story is the kind of teacher that that's wrong. Now, that's interesting. We might want to press that a little bit further. But that's kind of the lesson in the story. And so there's this one point um, where uh, this is how she used to see the world with all of these people, all of these neighbors, smiling, happy. But once she gets the lesson about strangers, here is how she begins to see the world. I love how even the balloons go from smiley face (laughs) to frowny face, the frog gets real mean, the rabbit seems uh, terrifying, as opposed to these happy guys. So So her whole framework changes. Once she has the idea of stranger in her head, she sees the world differently. And she learns to look with suspicion on people she's been taught are strangers. Now, my question this morning is, are similar views about strangers evident in the Old Testament? If so, what are they? And if not, how are we to see strangers differently? That's where Lydia and I are headed uh, in what's to come. So first, a little basics. Uh, We always need to do a little bit of Hebrew in the room. Uh, The Hebrew word that most closely captures the English concept of a stranger is a word that's pronounced ger. Gare is from a verb, gavar, that simply means to dwell or inhabit or travel or sojourn in a foreign land. Many, in many English, trans, uh, the gare is translated in many different ways in English Bibles. It's sometimes uh, stranger. It's sometimes uh, rendered as resident alien or foreign national, and sometimes it's refugee. And in many ways, the Hebrew concept of the gare encompasses all of those things, stranger, resident, alien, Foreign national, and refugee. The basic sense in Hebrew of what a gare is is a person who, out of threat or danger, comes to dwell in a land not their own. A person who, out of threat or danger, comes to dwell in a land not their own. So a gare is not someone who's on vacation. A gare is not someone who's on a business trip, although some business trips might fall into this category of threat or danger. Uh, Aguirre a, a, a is someone who is forced out of his or her homeland to live in another land. Now they're forced for a variety of different reasons. Sometimes famine, sometimes war, sometimes some form of political persecution, but there's some crisis in their home country that drives them out and forces them to live elsewhere. We might think of modern day examples, uh, currently in South Sudan, there's a, a lot of refugees going to Uganda because of, well, both political strife and because of famine. Of course, this is happening in Syria and many other parts of the world that people are forced out. They're not just saying, hey, wouldn't it be nice if we lived in Uganda? And so they go. It's, they have no choice. Either they die in their land or they seek another home. This, by and large, is what a ger is in the Old Testament. All of this means is that the Gare is disconnected from their families. They're disconnected from their natural support systems. Uh, they live a type of marginal existence on the edge of society. They're vulnerable socially, politically, and even economically. This is kind of the background of what a Gair is. Now, the second question I want to raise, and then I'm going to turn it over to Lydia to begin to uh, walk us through some passages is, what is the relationship between the Israelite and the Gair? Now, many times when I teach this topic, the starting assumption is that the ger, this foreigner, foreign national, is the opposite of an Israelite. So there's the Israelite, and then who's the non-Israelite? Well, a ger, so people think, is the synonym for the non-Israelite. But this is actually not quite right for two reasons. First, the Hebrew Bible uses other terms other than ger to typically talk about non-Israelites. The term that's usually used as the kind of opposite of an Israelite is a goy, that means nation. You might be familiar with that word uh, if you have some Jewish friends. Uh, We all are goy in that sense, uh, or at least I presume most of us are goy, not being Jewish. Um, Sometimes there's another word called nekar uh, that's also used to describe non-Israelites, but typically non-Israelites are not described as ger. So that's one reason the ger is not the opposite of the Israelite. Even more interestingly, the other reason the Ger is not the opposite of the Israelite is that the Israelites, in a number of occasions, are called Ger themselves. So you can be an Israelite that is kind of from this family of God and still be a stranger. And we see it in the Pentateuch in three different ways. Uh, And some of this might kind of strike a chord from where we've been so far in this study. First, we must remember that Abraham is called a ger. Abraham was not born in the land of Israel. Abraham was born in upper Mesopotamia, in Haran. And it's only later that he travels to the land of Israel, a land that he soon will come to identify with. Abraham, after all, is thought to be the father of the Israelites, the father of Judaism. And yet this person was originally a stranger and an alien uh, who comes to reside in a land that was not his own. So the very origins of Israel <coughs> begins with a ger. So that's point one. The second uh, is that the Israelites become ger in the land of Egypt. Now, do you all remember this story from going back a couple of weeks? The Israelites, uh, at about the time of Joseph, due to famine, they're forced out of their land, and they go to Egypt, who basically, under Joseph's uh, wise leadership, had helped the pharaohs stockpile a bunch of grain and food uh, to survive this, this famine. And so the Israelites out of famine, are forced to leave their land and to live in Egypt. And in Egypt, they are then Gare. Uh, in fact, sorry, that was a blank screen. Israelites is Gare in Egypt. Uh, there's this one great line in Exodus 2:22 20, where Moses actually names his son based off of his experience of being a Gair. Uh, the text in, in 222 says, she Zipporah bore a son. Remember, that's Moses' wife, uh, not Sephora or Laura, or Gamora, but Zipporah. She bore a son, and he, Moses, named him Gershom. Now note this ger right here. That's the ger that we know of. That's that Hebrew word for stranger. Um, So he named him Gershom, for he said, I have been an alien residing in a foreign land. Abraham's a ger, Moses is a ger. Two of the most prominent figures in Israelite religion in the Old Testament are ger. Third, and finally, all of Israel, uh, in the book of Leviticus, are called Gair. Now, why? Can you think of any reason? Uh, this is a little kind of pull the audience question. Can you think of any reason why the Israelites, even after they're living in Israel, might still be called Gair or Gerim, plural? Well, how could you still be a Gair if you're living in a land that is your own? How is that possible? Any guesses? Okay, so it might be that they're, so they're remembering that this was not our original land. You know, our ancestors were born elsewhere, so this is still kind of borrowed land in some ways. Yeah, that's really nice, uh, Susan. CJ? It's God's land. It's God's land. That's right. So even once the Israelites are born in their land and grow up in their land and have kids in their land, and this is their, their land, in God's perspective, they're still Gare. Leviticus 25 23 the land shall not be sold in perpetuity for the land is mine this is God speaking the land is mine this is my land you are foreigners on my turf with me you are but aliens now aliens here is that word gare again so there are three ways in which the Israelites themselves are gare Abraham's a gare Moses is a gare and then even the Israelite born in the land of Israel is a Gair because primarily that land is God's land. So there's a lot of reasons. What I'm trying to set up already is that there's a lot of reasons for us to question these divides between us and them, Israelite, -Israelite, non-Israelite, citizen and stranger, or or so on and so forth. Uh, Those lines are much blurrier in the Old Testament uh, than we typically recognize. But even more than that, because in case you didn't pick up on this, in case you were an Israelite and you forgot that you were a Gair. Even more than that, the Old Testament gives us a series of commandments in the legal materials that specifically protects and provides for the gear. And Lydia's going to get us started with that first set.
1: Good morning. Good morning. It's good to be back. Um, yes, so as Ryan hinted at, we're going to go through a couple of passages that, talks, um, that talk about how. They're supposed to interact with a stranger. And the first we're gonna look at is Exodus 22, uh, 21 through 23. And this first command is essentially telling them, don't harm the stranger. So it says, you shall not wrong or oppress a resident alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. You shall not abuse any widow or orphan. If you do abuse them, when they cry out to me, I will surely heed their cry. And this, uh, this command comes from the covenant code, which is in the section of Exodus uh, 20 through 23. Um, and these are the second of the law codes that Moses receives from God at Sinai. And as I said before, they're essentially telling them, don't harm the stranger. And these, these laws are called, um, are mostly what are called casuistic laws, which are these like, if you do this, then this will happen. So many of them sound like if your ox gores your neighbor, then the ox shall be stoned, but the owner won't be stoned. It's, they, a lot of them sound like that. But even, uh, but even here with this, like, what sounds like a very basic, straightforward sense of justice, it shows already a growing concern for the protection of the weak and the vulnerable, because what's the motivation for this law? You can see it up here. It says, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. So this is not only literally applying to the next generation, but it applies, it's supposed to apply to everyone through through their memory. They're required to, what what he's asking them to do is to recall their own painful history. Um, And if you look at the word here, oppress, this is actually the same word um, used in Exodus 3.9. In Hebrew, it's the word lahat, which means to subjugate. And that's the same word used in Exodus 3.9 to describe what the Egyptians did to the Israelites when they were being persecuted. So what we're learning here from this, from this one law is that naming our own experience of personal exclusion is key to shaping our ethic of how to treat the stranger um, and inclusion of the stranger. Uh, so what's, but what's important to, re- to distinguish is that it's supposed to be compelling us towards compassion, not towards revenge. right? Um, but this text, like the others, roots its its ethic toward the stranger in this experience, uh, in their experience in Egypt. But, what's interesting here is that it also adds this further motivation, um, and it tells us a little bit about about what God is like. Uh, It kindles God's passion for justice. So, to mistreat the alien is not just bad for you, but it's an actual affront to God's character. um, Because, what does it say that will happen if they do abuse them? Says God will hear their cry. Let me see if it highlights that. Nope. Yeah, there we go. Last one. Surely heed their cry, Uh, which is already pointing to that the orientation that God has towards the vulnerable and the weak. Um, He cares about their cry. He will listen to it. And this in itself is recalling uh, back in Exodus two, where God hears the cry of the distress from the Israelites when they're under the oppression, when they're under persecution. And he responds to them. So the implication here is that the stranger will be treated like like Israel when they were enslaved. And just as they they are treated that way, so Israel will be treated like Egypt if they are the ones that end up acting like an oppressor. So then we're going to move to Exodus 23, the next one, which goes just a step further. Yeah, there we go. Exodus 23, 9, which says, you shall not oppress a resident alien. You know the heart of an alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. So note the, the repetition of that word alien or stranger three times. Um, and the call here is pretty much the same, like don't, don't harm them. So it kind of sounds like the previous one. But there's actually two differences. Um, and first, we'll look on a little bit more in detail on what it means not to harm them specifically. So in this passage, in the preceding eight verses, it talks about how justice should not be based on status or power or size. It says don't take bribes, don't follow the majority in wrongdoing, don't perverse, pervert justice to the poor, etc. My favorite is, uh, it says, when you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden, and you would, you would hold back from setting it free, you must help to set it free. Which I think is kind of funny, because I can imagine this guy walking along and being like, ugh, there's that donkey that belongs to that guy who ripped me off the other day. <laughs> Great, I guess I have to stop and help it. Um, but the point is, like, God wants you to help the person that you aren't inclined naturally to help, whether that's the poor, or whether it's like your personal enemy. Um, I knew there was something really pretty here that I don't want to miss. Yes. <laughs> so, in this, and this text emphasizes, more, uh, more emphasis is placed on the why, the why you're not to oppress. Uh, and it's interesting because these motivation clauses uh, are somewhat unique to Israelite law code uh, in comparison to their ancient or eastern neighbors. So, the old met- motivation is repeated, let's go back, yeah. The old motivation is repeated because you yourself were strangers, but it goes a step further. There's a new motivation given, for you know the heart of a stranger. And the word know here is, is more than just like, you know, facts, right? It's, it's this intimacy that's implied. And also what's interesting about this word, I mean, about this extra motivation is the word for heart used here um, is not the normal word that you see in Hebrew for heart. That's usually lev or levav. But this word here is not actually heart, it's nefesh. And unlike a heart where it's like you have a heart, you don't have a nefesh so much as you are a nefesh. It's like the core part of who you are. It's the self, it's the core being. And so by referencing that here as the motivation to not harm the alien, it's asking them to uh, intimately identify with that core part of the stranger, that core, like, what you really see. You're recognizing that common humanity. Um, And to to look beyond what makes you different from the stranger and look and see, like, how are you actually really connected to them intimately? So it's reminding us that that hospitality towards the other is not just sort of this basic transactional thing, but it's actually a, a very deeply relational thing. So, I think Ryan's going to take us into Deuteronomy now. All right, thanks, Lydia. I think these are are two powerful points that Lydia gives us. Um, You know, I think about my own life in relationship to the stranger. I I feel good that, generally speaking,
0: I do no harm when it comes to strangers. I, I think I'm on decently safe ground with that. But the second point, to know the heart of a stranger, is much more challenging. I think it asks us to go further. Lydia nicely put it as it's, it's not, uh, it, it, it asks for a relationship. It asks for knowing someone. It asks for like proximity and encountering the common humanity in the other person. And that part of the ethic begins to push me. And what, what we're gonna see happening here in the rest of, of these Old Testament passages is, it's not sufficient just to say, I have not harmed a stranger, therefore I have fulfilled the law. The, the, the legal mandate in the Old Testament Pushes us further and further and further to an active and compassionate care for the outsider. And so Lydia's already gotten us on a good track towards that. Um, another place where we see this even taken a step further is in the book of Deuteronomy. Now, the book of Deuteronomy, um, of all the books independent too, in the Pentateuch, and maybe in all the books of the, all of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy is arguably the one most concerned with those on the margins. Uh, In many ways, Deuteronomy is more egalitarian in perspective, and it it, uh, puts more emphasis on protection and care for the non-Israelite than any other book in the Old Testament. So it has a lot to say in the end about a stranger. And I'm just going to give you very quickly a couple passages that illustrate... Sorry, there it is. To illustrate that it's not sufficient just to do no harm. It's not sufficient just to know the heart of a stranger. But one must go a step further and take responsibility to protect to actively protect the stranger. Here it comes out in a couple of verses. First, Deuteronomy 1.16. Give the members of your community a fair hearing and judge rightly between one person and another. This is just good ways of running a society, make things fair, whether citizen or resident alien. So the command that God is giving to Moses to give to the people here is essentially to establish a certain base level of legal fairness, whether you are a citizen, that is a brother, or whether you are a stranger and not a citizen. Think about what a radical call this is, to treat citizen and non-citizen alike in the legal courts. Now, we can debate. I know there are lawyers in the room, uh, and I know that I would be on on very thin ice if I ventured into kind of the legal ramifications of of that uh, in our country today, but just notice the ethic of it. I don't know if this is telling us precisely how to run our courts today, but notice the ethic that establishes a baseline of fairness in the courts, regardless of your national identity. That would challenge us, I think, in America today. Second, and going on a similar line, Deuteronomy 24, 17, 18, you shall not deprive a resident alien, there again, that's our word, gare, or an orphan of justice. You shall not take a widow's garment in pledge presumably because she doesn't have another garment to wear if she gives one in pledge. Remember that you were a slave in Egypt. There's that idea that Lydia introduced to us again. And the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. Now, this verse might seem a little bit redundant. Didn't just Moses just tell us to have fair legal systems? What's the difference in your opinion? And here I want an actual response, not just a rhetorical question that I sometimes give. Uh, what's the difference between having Fair legal courts and maintaining justice. Are they the same thing? Is one a bigger category than other? If so, what does the one include that the other doesn't? So what's the difference between fair courts and justice? What do you all think? If we have fairness in the courts, do we automatically have justice in the land, Florida? Justice doesn't always end up in the court. Ah, so there, are, there can be instances of injustice that don't end up in the courts, either because they don't get brought to the court system or because it's hard to legislate them, right? It might be bad behavior, immoral behavior, but maybe not necessarily illegal behavior, right? So there can be a difference. Something can be in unjust and yet still legal, right? Please. Well, so Go ahead, same thing. one is tangible and, and, and one isn't, you know, one, one we can point to and say, you know, and gives concrete examples, yes. and the other one is a little, a little, you know, a little more murky. And is the justice is a little more murky one? Yeah, definitely. Okay, good. Yeah, that's right. Definitely. It's the bigger category. It's the category that covers more things. Bill? And this may be a bit of skew of what your focus is here, but uh, I noticed that what you have posted up, here always refers to the rest of alien uh-huh. and not just an alien. And are they making a distinction between between protecting uh, the transient person or the person who's there to stay for a while but wasn't born there? Yeah, that's a great question. So Bill's noticing that there is different language here in these texts. Sometimes it's alien, sometimes it's resident alien, sometimes it's stranger. I think, unfortunately, that's just an inconsistency in English translation. All of the times I'm giving you these phrases, it's the same underlying Hebrew concept. It's always ger. So I think, Bill, that in all of these cases, whether it says resident, alien, or alien, it means someone who is pretty permanently living in the land. That is, they're not expected to go back to their country next week because they're just there for a visit. These are, I don't know if I want to say permanent as if it's impossible for them to go back, but for all intents and purposes, they're they're part of the community in terms of where they live. I think you all are getting around. Oh, let me get one more here. Sorry, thank you.
1: I was just wondering, it's uh, often said, well, I've heard often said that the, uh, justice and the law enforcement are like two different things. It could be the uh, law that's written down, but then
0: justice, which is something that the person should be, should be A, is, is different, and that justice could not be found. Yeah, I think that's good. good. So the, the legal courts uh, legislate the law, right? They, they oversee the law, but justice includes legal things, but goes beyond it to a broader ethic of hospitality and compassion. Again, this idea that, that you can do things that are unjust and not be arrested for it, right? right? You don't have to go to the courts because you've been unjust. This is what this second verse is trying to guard against. It's trying to say, no, 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 it's not enough just to have a fair court system and maintain justice in the courts. You have to do it beyond the court system, too. You have to be a community more radically oriented. Yeah? To follow on Bill's
1: point, though, regardless of the clunkiness and I mm-hmm. the unpoetic nature of resident kneeling, right? but is Bill's point this nuance between someone who is seeking to be part of the community or relative permanency, and is there a moral distinction between Justice you offer to someone passing through versus someone staying for a while.
0: Yeah, it, it's a fair question about whether we should draw a distinction between two different categories, regardless of the term and the translation. Should we draw a distinction? I, I, I think I can say that the vast majority of people would have been considered there permanently, if for no other reason than practically speaking, it wasn't easy just to go on a trip and stay for a month. And go away. Typically, when you, even if you were driven from your home country out of famine, and you thought you might one day return when that famine was over, that return trip, you didn't, bu- you didn't book your return flight, right? You, you didn't know. Even if you hoped you could go back, there was a sense that, like, I need to make this work now. So I, I think that's a long way of saying I think generally this is speaking about people who are there for more than just a brief period. Now, whether or not the, the Old Testament makes a distinction between those two, I'm not entirely certain. My inclination is that they don't, uh, and that they primarily treat uh, the more resident person. You have Abraham and Sarah when the three strangers yes. uh, came; they offered them hospitality yes. and, and overnight and food and that type of thing. And, and, uh, and those folks were not resident. That's right. Uh, so there is, I think, there is a, a, a pretty justly. I'm not sure. That I see the distinction between whether you're resident or whether you're not. Uh, that I think the Old Testament points towards uh, treating them justly. That's right. I mean, I don't think the Old spends a lot of time trying to uh, finally uh, delineate between if you're here just for a short time or you're here for a, for a longer time. Um, I need to get things back to Lydia quickly. Um, and so I need to go quickly through, uh, like, eight different slides. So, uh, But it's going to happen, Lydia. I'm going to get it back to you. You're going to have plenty of time. And like me, you then can go over. Uh, and then that will be officially part of your training here. Um, so I, I want to move on just to say one thing about Leviticus because we haven't yet... Um, actually, I'm going to skip... I think I'm going to skip this one. Um, picture, picture, text, text, important point. Okay, um, to this next one from Leviticus. Um, this is a familiar line. There are two texts in Leviticus that I want to end on. And you'll know some of these lines, but I want to complicate one of the lines that you know, as I typically like to do. We hear this from Leviticus. I know a book that you often read for your personal quiet times and devotions. I know it's always open on, your, on your, a nightstand. You shall not hate in your heart any one of your kin... You shall not reprove your neighbor, or you will incur guilt yourself. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, you've heard that before. I shall love your neighbor as yourself. Where do you know that from? What's what's always the Sunday school answer? Jesus. Jesus said that. Well, Jesus plagiarized that from Leviticus, or at least he borrowed it without citing it. Uh, I would not report him to the dean uh, because it's Jesus. But nevertheless, this idea, this second of the great commandments that we should love your neighbor as yourself, that's pure Old Testament gold right there, right? That's original Old Testament material. Jesus is borrowing it. So that's point one. The second point is that I've often heard when this text is taught a critique of ancient Israel. Because people say, well, just, you're only supposed to love your neighbor. And presumably your neighbor was the Israelite. And so this kind of starts uh, kind of an idea that your ethical responsibility ends with other Israelites. I've heard this taught. I've heard this said in many different places in the church and the academy. It's a classic case of not continuing to read the Bible. Because a, very, uh, a few lines later, we get this. When an alien resides with you, again, that's our gear with you in your land and you, you shall not oppress them. We've heard that before. The alien who resides with you shall be to you as the citizen among you. You shall love the alien as yourself. See how it reworks that phrase that we often know. This goes back to the idea of of neighbor and stranger earlier. It's saying, no no no, it's not just love your your neighbor. It's love your stranger. It's expanding that ethic even beyond what Jesus said. I think Jesus knew this, but I kind of wish you would have said it. I wish you would have said, and you shall love your neighbor and your stranger as yourself. Because that's the whole point here in the book of Leviticus. You shall love the alien as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. There again is that reminder about the core of the ethic. So in this case, it's not just enough to do no harm or to know the heart of a stranger, or to actively protect and provide for. But there must, in your mind, be a change of status. You must start dissolving these categories of neighbor and stranger, because in the end, your responsibility is to love both without distinction. And with that, Lydia, I leave you, hopefully, enough time to finish. All right, so... I just usually talk faster when I'm out of time. (laughs) I already talk fast, so that's kind of a dangerous thing to tell
1: me. But so we were gonna. We thought it'd be kind of cool to end with um, a narrative. Although full disclosure, Ruth is not actually in the Pentateuch. So don't walk out of here saying thinking that's what I said because she's not. This book is not in the Pentateuch. But regardless, she is in the Old Testament. um, And we thought it would be cool to to end it with this um, with her story because it epitomizes the conclusion. of this arc that we've traced, not as thoroughly as we would have liked, but still, she epitomizes this, uh, this arc where we've gone from essentially hearing don't harm the stranger to full inclusion of the stranger, love the neighbor as yourself. So, Ruth is a really short book, it's four chapters, it's a very um, tight narrative, it's got clear themes and the names of the characters have, like, are very symbolic, it's a good read. Um, but, and it centers around, of course, Ruth, who's actually a very odd choice uh, for a main character. What makes her an odd choice um, is that, you know, A, she's a woman, and usually the Old Testament is about dudes, right, so already kind of unusual there. Second, she's a widowed woman. Um, she's very, you know, it sets a very vulnerable position. Um, and then thirdly, she's not just an Israelite widow, but she's a foreigner, she's a foreign widow, and also, She's not just any foreigner, but she's from Moab of all places. And you might be thinking, what's so bad about Moab? Well, I'll tell you. So for original readers, Moab would have immediately signaled like very bad connotations, stranger danger. Like she would have, Sister Bear would have been like, ugh, all of, yeah. So whenever Moab gets mentioned in the Old Testament, it's always negative. So for the first, exa- just a couple examples, just so that it can drive this point home. In Genesis 19, it explains that the Moabites came from the incestuous union between Lot and his daughter. So if you remember Lot, Sodom and Gomorrah's story, his wife turned into a pillar of salt, that's the Lot they're referring to. But yeah, that's where they came from. Not the most illustrious beginning. Um, and then in Deuteronomy 23, the Moabites are singled out uh, for being prohibited from entering the assembly of the Lord because they refused the Israelites food and water when they were on their way out of Egypt. And in the book of Judges, they're just kind of like somebody that they war with a lot. So, you know, they're not, they have a very established bad history with Israel. Um, so it's very, it was one thing to make them a character in the book, but, you know, she's the main character. And so it's a very interesting setup. Um, and what's, what's even more interesting is that you can tell the narrator is actually not trying to hide the fact that Ruth is, uh, is Moabite. And so this is a lot of text, and bear with me, you can just look at the, uh, Look at the highlighted parts. That's the point. But uh, so this is how the story starts. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to live in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife Naomi. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. Already a little... The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. When they had lived there for about 10 years, both sons also died, so that the woman, Naomi, was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she started to return with her daughters-in-law from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had considered his people and given them food. So where is Ruth from? Moab, exactly. The author really doesn't want you to miss that, which is interesting. Um, Keep that in mind. So even though Naomi thinks her daughters-in-law should stay in Moab, Ruth decides, if you remember, she decides to stick it out with her and move to to Judah. And what's really interesting, though, is even though after Ruth formally declares that she will adopt the culture and religion of her mother-in-law, and she says in that famous line, your people will be my people, and your God, my God, the author still continues to refer to her by her homeland. And it says, so Naomi returned with Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, who came back with her from the country of Moab, and they went to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So the text will continue to refer to her as Ruth the Moabite, and so why why would the author do that? Right? She's already converted, so to speak. Um, So let's just forget her origins, right? But I think what this demonstrates is that even though she's immigrated, even though she's decided she's gonna worship Yahweh, the the author never wants us to forget that she's a stranger. And they never want to completely cover up the fact that, this is, that Ruth is coming from origins that would have been a bit uncomfortable for an Israelite audience. And so despite the fact that she's a Moabite widow, how is she treated in the rest of the book, right? This is an interesting question because the, with this setup. So when Ruth gets to Bethlehem, uh, she asks Naomi if she can go glean from the fields behind the reapers. And this is a practice that, had we had more time, Ryan would have talked about, but uh, it's referenced in Leviticus 19 where they would, they would, they were ordered not to collect everything, but they needed to leave some for the widows and the orphans um, to go gather. So this is what she's doing, and this is, and while she's doing this, Boaz comes along, um, and he's the owner of the field, and he notices her, and when he inquires his workers about her identity, the worker says, "Uh, see, right there, yeah, the worker says, She's the Moabite who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. <laughs> I, just, I just can't get over that. Like, how unsubtle it is. It's like, don't forget, this woman's from Moab, that place you hate. Um, but how does Boaz respond to this? Uh, it would have been completely normal for her, him to have just been like, get her off my land. We hate, you know, this is a foreigner. You know, she's nothing. But he doesn't do that. He completely disregards her foreignness, which. The worker has already mentioned, and then another verse, Ruth mentions it. And instead, he says, now listen, my daughter. Do not go glean in another field or leave this one. And he tells her, essentially, that she doesn't have to worry about being harassed by anyone um, or that she'll have to get, how she'll get food, because now she's under his protection and his provision. And even by using that term, my daughter, he's really emphasizing their their connection you know he's recognizing that common humanity uh and this really takes ruth back she says she questions his kindness and says why have i found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me when i'm a foreigner so she herself is surprised by his welcoming response because foreigners were typically treated you know they were met with suspicion but again boaz blesses her even more when he's responding to this and he says may the lord reward you for your deeds and may you have a full reward from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. And of course, if you remember, the story continues. Ruth and Boaz marry. There's some other interesting bits there, but they eventually marry and they have a son named Obed and Naomi becomes a grandmother and all is restored and it's a very happy ending. Um, what's interesting, though, is that is what's included after that sort of happily ever after conclusion. And for... For modern readers, myself included, uh, even though I love the Old Testament, when we encounter genealogies, it's kind of a bummer. You're like, ah, great, a list of strange names. This means nothing to me. But this one is really significant. Uh, And it says, now these are the descendants of Perez. Perez became the father of Hezron, Hezron of Ram, Ram of Aminadab, Aminadab of Nashon, you may be falling asleep at this point, Nashon of Solomon, Solomon of Boaz, wait a minute, no Boaz, Boaz of Obed, Obed of Jesse and Jesse of David. Yeah, it's like a big reveal. So, what this gene- genealogy does essentially is connect the characters from this story to a, to a time and to figures that would have been really well known to an Israelite audience. And David would have been this like drumroll, big reveal. And this exact genealogy, interestingly enough, gets picked up later in the Gospel of Matthew. See, see where it says Boaz, Boaz, and it even mentions Ruth. And then it goes all the way to King David. And then, of course, the big one, the big kahuna at the end, Jesus, leads all the way up to Jesus. So, by linking the preeminent king of Israel, David, back, going back to Ruth, to Ruth the strange Moabite widow, it not only reminds Israel of its own strange roots, but we also learn something about how to treat the foreigner— so we've progressed from don't just harm the, for, the stranger, but you yourself are the stranger. That's where you came from. That's who you are. And I will close, I think within time, yay, um, with this really awesome quote from uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. And he's, he's talking about the stranger, which he writes about a lot. Um, but he says that God says, I made you into the world's archetypal stranger so that you would fight for the rights of strangers, for your own and those of others, wherever they are, whoever they are, whatever the color of their skin or the nature of their culture, because though they are not in your image, says God, they are nonetheless in mine. There is only one reply strong enough to answer the question, why should I not hate the stranger? Because the stranger is me. Thank you.